Good. Like, how can you, like, in your right mind, not pay any attention to the app store, but you're going to make Meta so freaking <laughs> giffy? Like, what are you doing? Like, do your job. everyone, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. This is your one-stop podcast to stay up to date with the latest game business news and all of their insights. And today I'm joined by Anil Desgupta, co-founder and co-CEO of First Light Games, and Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic. Hey. Hello, hello. So yeah, before we dive in, just want to say happy Diwali to all of our friends who are celebrating the Hindu Festival of Lights. I saw lots of pictures going around. It looks really, really nice. And then it's Halloween. And Aaron made a controversial statement before we started the recording that Halloween is the best holiday. It's a fact. Um, it's just <laughs> very true. As you can tell behind me, I got the little pumpkin thing over here if you're on YouTube. And I got my skeleton, which is taking my, my dog's bed up in the background. <laughs> I don't think he's a huge fan of that. But uh, yeah, Halloween is is absolutely the best. And Partially because of the immaculate vibes of just, you know, sp like spooky things are just absolutely hilarious to me and I can't fully explain it. And also candy is amazing. And I have never grown up from being a kid and candy is still amazing. And it's just an excuse to load up um, every October. So, so yeah, I'm pumped for Halloween. It's going to be a great time. Cool. H how do we move on from that? Um What's your favorite? What's your favorite chocolate? Uh, I like I like Reese's from for just like the the standard chocolate fair. Reese's pieces? No, not the pieces. No, the, the pieces are a downgrade. <laughs> I like the I like the the like the ultra king size ones. The of like the okay. big yeah. I once had like a I want to say it was like a two pound Reese's peanut butter cup. And it was <laughs> it was great. I don't know where you can even get those these days, but that might yeah. have been one of the the peaks of my life. I'm pretty sure they're illegal in the UK. Uh, and if you haven't noticed, I don't like Halloween, so you know we're on the two different ends here. And Neil, where do you sit on the Halloween spectrum? Well, it's funny, isn't it? For us in uh, the UK, Halloween is not really that big a deal as it is in the States. It's definitely got bigger the last five or 10 years, although I feel it's been more for people going out partying rather than sort of trick-or-treating with, with kids and things like that. I don't mind it. A bit of good, clean fun is, is nice to see. Um, but I think, yeah, we definitely notice how like uh, we used to work with like Americans, probably same for you, Marie, and how everyone just goes crazy for it. And for us, we're like, huh? What's the big deal? I guess it's a bit similar to how like, if you work in Japan, they just don't care about Christmas. They just think mm. it's sort of like a romantic holiday that you might take half a day off. Uh, but then for like every Westerner that works, they're like, what do you mean you're not taking Christmas off? So um, I, I have neither strong nor negative feelings about Halloween. Well, let us know in the comments how you feel about <laughs> Halloween to all the listeners to help us, you know, make a decision on this holiday. And um, so Scan 4.0, which we discussed a few episodes ago, we deep dived into the benefits that it would bring with the update, but also the challenges that will remain uh, unaddressed. That The Scan 4.0 is now live since Monday. So if you're wondering all about it, you can go and check out that episode uh, episodes to, to learn about everything that's coming in the update. And, and Neil, 
Las Royale. Is it now in Open Meet? I saw some some Twitter feeds on this. It is, yep. Uh, just go on Twitter. You can find out how to download it. It's available on both mobile platforms at the moment. We are trying to get it through submission of Apple. We're going to come to that probably one of our talking points coming right oh, up because okay. that has been one of the hottest topics in the, the Web3 environment right now, but especially for us because it's literally affecting us right now. Um, but it's in open beta right now. Yeah, people can try it out. We're doing a, we're doing a stream right now. Actually, I'm I'm doing this with you guys, but the rest of my team are, are hosting a Halloween special stream. Actually, so Aww. you'd probably like that, Aaron. <laughs> They're they've dressed up and everything, um, <laughs> having some fun and games. Um, and we did like a community stream yesterday as well, so it's going quite well. Just getting people involved. It's still, I'll admit, a bit rough around the edges. We really believe in like MVPs, getting things to players as soon as possible, and iterating on the gameplay. But it's it's a big step for sure to get like a fully working Web three blockchain thing all together and um yeah but the pace is, is relentless we've got to keep going so yep it's available now that explains why i tried to search it on the app store when i saw it and i couldn't find it so. well that, it, well, then it's no longer an open beta and it's just available right that's how we would uh make the differentiation so that's oh, why we okay can, okay yeah Okay, well, today we have a lot of topics to, to get through. I honestly don't know what the title of this episode is going to be. <laughs> I'll have to become creative later on. So we're going to be diving into Microsoft's plan to build their own mobile storefront and App Store's guidelines uh, where they say hello to NFT. So Anil was just referencing Netflix's cloud gaming plans, Silent Hill's uh, Mile, or what um, Matt Dion called it, Smiling, yeah. <laughs> so and, <good>. so <laughs> and if there's some time, we're going to discuss uh, Marvel Snap's mobile game release. We might try to do a very lightning deconstruction, hitting on all of the main points of the game. So, Anil, what is Microsoft's plan to build their own storefront? Today, we have two two versus Apple here. <laughs> well, let's go through it. So this was some pretty interesting news that dropped earlier in the week. Um, it was actually found simply through looking at the UK's Competition and Markets Authority. There's normally like a report there discussing the merits or pitfalls of the Activision Blizzard um, acquisition and it happened earlier in the year, it's still not gone through. But really interesting text was picked up and, you know, they had briefly mentioned before that they plan to build their own storefront. I think it's worth calling out that it's not just a storefront, but it's specifically an Xbox mobile branded storefront. And that, I think, leads to lots of questions. So I'm going to read out what was found and then we can, you know, discuss the kind of thought angles and questions around it. So the transaction will improve Microsoft's ability to create a next generation game store, which operates across a range of devices, including mobile, as a result of the addition of Activision Blizzard's content. Building on Activision Blizzard's existing communities of gamers, Xbox will seek to scale the Xbox store to mobile, attracting gamers to a new Xbox mobile platform. Shifting consumers away from the Google Play Store and App Store mobile devices, however, will require a major shift in consumer behavior. Microsoft hopes that by offering well-known and popular content, gamers will be more inclined to try something new. So quite a statement there and, and lots of things to unpack there. So, you know, let, let's discuss something. Well, I'll give you some kind of thoughts from my end and we can go into more specifics. So one, you know, what do Microsoft hope to gain from this activity, given that seeing as they've just bought Activision Blizzard, they already have some of the most successful games on mobile in their portfolio. Having both Candy Crush Saga and Call of Duty Mobile is a pretty <laughs> stacked roster, if you don't mind me saying, you know, in terms of revenues. And those both those games are IPs. I don't think they're really going to struggle to get new games in that franchise to, to take over. In fact, quick little segue, Maria, have you seen the Call of Duty Modern Warfare advert in Piccadilly Circus in London at the moment? 
it is the uh, most crazy no. you should say oh it's really well done it's like this yeah. 3d mad advert and um yeah very impressive marketing campaign anyway okay. moving on so so they've already got this so you know what what do they hope to gain they've already got that they've already got like a huge advantage that many people don't have um secondly this sort of thing has been tried before tim sweeney you know is famously trying to push like his own epic mobiles you know store onto mobile they already have it on pc they've kind of failed and you know getting through apple's been pretty tricky and i think it's worth revisiting that statement the statement literally says you know um shifting consumers away from the google play store and app store on mobile so they're, they're not just going for the google play store which is probably the more easy one to do because that's already allowed but they're specifically trying to do it on the app store too or perhaps they've seen you know the recent uh judgments and the law that we've been discussing on this podcast quite a few times and you know they're really getting ready for it so i think that's very interesting um what could they do differently compared to other stores um obviously they have a pretty big advantage that having people's gamer pass and xbox tags and things like that and get them in it is pretty important although you know why can they not just use their own cloud gaming to have people play games via that and kind of get around the xbox store completely or the need to have one um do we think that microsoft are big enough to to cause a change and you know make people cave in and allow them in um and there's a lot more we could talk about too so yeah that's that's the topic um I'll pass over to you guys. What do you think? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I guess the the obvious point is that they just they literally can't compete on the App Store on iOS. Um, you know, maybe Android they can spin something up, but it's you know for now and for the foreseeable future, it's literally impossible to to like really pull this off on on iOS. And so I think it's interesting to to ask like, why is this even a story? Uh, like, why are they doing this, even though, like, we all know that they they can't, um, at least right now. Um, and in my mind, I have a feeling that maybe to start, this is less immediately about building a competing storefront and perhaps more about building, like, a cross-platform, like, in-app, um, you know, like, touchpoint for Xbox users to access all of their games. Um, and I think it's a pretty obvious move for for Xbox to in one app let users especially Game Pass members leverage xCloud to play their games on mobile devices not have to you know mess around with browsers but have like one central point um, and an easy to access app to do that so so my guess is that maybe to start this could be more for existing users first and foremost then you know if they pull that off great you know maybe there's some optionality from there where they could then like tie in other storefront kinds of features, try to move more transactions over there. I still like have a hard time thinking they would ever really move like Candy Crush or Call of Duty over here. That would just like kill those games. <laughs> like unless you've like already built built up pretty big audiences behind this app, which I don't think they would because all their other games so far are for, you know, console PC players, not for mobile players. Um, but I was also thinking too that like, Maybe it's a way for Microsoft to do its part eventually to kind of raise the heat on Apple and like from their end, like push and try to get like regulators involved to be like, hey, we're a big company and we can't we can't best serve our users. And, you know, maybe they'll they'll pull like an Epic Games and go after some lawsuit or work with others to that. That is what I think I want to say. Yeah, Yeah, I I I agree with that statement. Yeah, Yeah, big time. 
Yeah, so I, I think I was going to say playing the long game. Oh, I think they're playing the long game with this, right? Like there, there may be some more immediate benefits, but because they literally can't do it, I think this is mainly more for for show for now, in the hopes that maybe they can spin it into something and push the entire ecosystem in a different direction along the way. I remember back end of last year, there was a statement where. I believe Microsoft wanted to get into the App Store, but they could not due to the Game Pass, and they were just blocked. And it seems that if I'm looking at how can we increase our revenue growth in terms of our Xbox offering, looking at that 30% that they're losing to the stores, it just makes sense to to take a step into it because I imagine the costs of even doing a prototype. I know it didn't work with Epic. But now that there's even more games and additional company exploring this, you know, we see some web-free games doing side-loading apps. Uh, we see some mobile games exploring solutions like Xola to have the, the store on browser. It's just another player entering the market, and I completely agree with you that they are playing the long game and throwing more heat. And I believe there's still the uh, filings going on with Epic Games, with Apple. Now there's also the NFT aspect that we'll discuss in a little bit and it's just turn, turning on the heat for Apple that they can continue trying to do their walled garden. But now with Microsoft throwing their weight in, we'll, we'll have to see. I think it's inevitable that Apple do lose that argument over time because Microsoft themselves fell victim to this back in the 90s, right? Before you had Internet Explorer built into your PC and they didn't allow any competitors. And then they famously fought with, you know, um, Netscape and other browsers and no one uses that browser anymore, but they won the argument. And that meant that they could no longer do it and they had to allow other things. And that was seen as like anti-competition. So I think it's pretty similar that the same thing will happen eventually. I think they're probably... I'm confident that sooner or later by some legal things, it, it may not be like an immediate thing, but some country will give it in and then it will slowly start, you know, propagating out and then they can make a move. And then, you know, it's not just the fact that they themselves don't have to pay the 30%, but then being a storefront themselves, they can probably offer developers on their store, you know, oh, hey, Maria, why don't you put your game on the Microsoft store on the iPhone and you only have to pay 10% royalties rather than 30%. And in return, Microsoft will feature you and they will make a, a better thing and get you more downloads and better revenues, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, that could be the game changer. And then you'll have like a few different people fighting it out on the fronts. And so, I think these things, in my opinion, are pretty likely, just given that I think if you look at like, the legal wording, I don't feel Apple really have like a, <laughs> a leg to stand on, really, to sort of say that they are allowed to have like, complete and utter control over it. it. It is basically anti-competition. Should we dive into, actually, then, the App Store guidelines? Yeah, OK. I mean, I was going to say, so you know, the other potential upside of it as well is they will allow the, the second topic that you're going to come on to to be something that wouldn't be applicable, which is also very interesting. Well, Microsoft has taken a stance, at least with Minecraft, correct, of being yeah. not allowing NFTs in their games. Yeah, I wouldn't like, overly extrapolate from just the Minecraft example. Um, yeah, and I think they're probably open-minded, but taking it slow. But yeah, haven't haven't been mm -hmm. the most friendly to you know Web three yet. So we'll we'll kick yeah. off the App Store guidelines um so the guidelines were updated on tuesday tuesday monday the 24th <laughs> and we won't go through all of the updates um, i'm just going to be focusing on discussing the guidelines that address the nfts in app there were some changes that happened in terms of the the advertisements um those will mostly be handled by the ad networks so i don't think it's it's us going going into where that's going into it 
And okay, so I'm going to read the full paragraph that includes <laughs> the update. So I think I saw a lot of messages on social media discussing it that were just showing the snippet that Apple shared in the updated guidelines. But I think the whole paragraph gives more context into it. So we'll go for the first um, revision, which is the in-app purchase guidelines that were advised to include AR and crypto restrictions. And it says, if you want to unlock features or functionality within your app, by way of example, subscriptions or in-game currencies, you must use in-app purchase. Apps may not use their own mechanisms to unlock content or functionality, such as license keys, augmented reality, markers, QR codes, crypto cryptocurrencies, and cryptocurrency wallets, etc. Apps in their metadata may not include buttons, external links, or other calls to action that direct consumers to purchasing mechanisms other than in-app purchase. So what's been going through the social media? And Anil, I'm really curious in your interpretation of it is within the context that you can have features, you can have elements in the game that unlock features and functionalities as long as they are sold as in that purchase. And then it has that revision of you cannot use your own mechanism. So what do you take away from this? <laughs> this could be quite a long topic. I have to say, since Monday, my phone has absolutely exploded, uh, both on Twitter and Slack. So many other people in this space have been messaging me because we're literally doing this right now. We actually had one version of our app rejected last week on something similar, and we're trying to figure out what we need to do. Um, we believe we're okay, but I think as you've kind of done it there, I was actually having this discussion with somebody in a kind of sister company this morning, and we were trying to work it out. And they were like, do you think we would get through based on what we're doing here? So yeah, it seems, as you say, that they have said that anything that you can buy outside of your game should also be available for people to buy in the game right, at least in terms of functionality. So it seems that the number of games are doing things where you can buy items outside an external marketplace, and those items can be fully tradable and the players own them. But in the app, players should be able to buy the same items using IAPs and they should functionally be the same. So if you have that, we believe that's okay. The, the big you know point of contention that's really scaring a lot of people is the gated access, right? So that means that you couldn't sell, for example, like a pass or some kind of you know NFT that gates functionality in your game um, and to give you some examples like um i've seen recently there's a company called uh mighty bear making the title called mighty action mm -hmm. heroes which is also like a top-down battle royale we know those guys as well very good team and they're minting like a free nft that will give you like a mighty pass i believe it's called which would allow you to to get early access to their games and for example i'm not sure that that would be allowed given the current rules because if you play the game and it says you can only play this if you have a mighty pass that that certainly wouldn't be allowed and even if they allowed you to play but it gated you from like certain features in the in the app that wouldn't be allowed too unless you could also buy the mighty pass inside the app too so i think things like that are going to be the biggest sort of no-no to, to kind of do it and then in terms of what's going on on social media <laughs> I, it was very interesting i can tell you so there's another really great development team here in london called oxalis they were actually at one of the events that you helped present maria and, <laughs> and they came out and said you know we are disappointed by apple's announcement regarding nfts but also excited about the possibilities and innovation it will encourage now more than ever we see the benefits of being more decentralized and taking control <laughs> out of the hands of giants let's build muscle emoji so i found that very interesting i really like those guys we get on very well with them i'm not fully um you know up to speed with exactly how their game works and things like that but that was quite an interesting statement 
perhaps says that that was something they were thinking of. And then from Kenrick from Play Ventures, who's a really big player in the kind of space, they, <laughs> he went and said, you know, overall, not great, but what you'd expect from a, monop a monopolistic player like Apple and a prime example of how these players suffocate innovation, an opportunity for Google Play to do better. Long term, the market should eventually force their hand. So <laughs> I think those sort of sentiments are very relevant. I'm also the member of several sort of Web3 groups in London that don't just do games, but just Web3 apps in general. And um, I went to two events this week to discuss this topic, and it was the hot topic that everyone was talking about. A lot of kind of shock and sort of what, what's going to happen, feeling of being a bit down on it. You know, I think the biggest thing is that like if you're trying to make your a business space around this, it kind of shows you the risks of being, you know, part of something like this. They can just change their whim, you know, their opinions on a whim, and then you know your entire business could be destroyed overnight. And what can you do about it? It is pretty terrifying if you think about it. People trying to work it out. So it's really, really fast moving. I think actually what's really interesting with the whole sort of blockchain movement in general is that I can't think of a time where things were moving this quickly. Even free to play, which moved quite quickly, I don't think moved at this sort of pace. Um, I can remember like in free to play in the early days, there was like um, you had to require players to put um, their password again every 15 minutes to stop people making like loads and loads of purchase that was something that was done quite early on then there was like some countries asking you to have their odds for loot boxes and things like that but generally speaking it wasn't too bad whereas here it seems like the rules change every five minutes and we'll see what we have to do and you know i think we can call out like what well maybe this is the point you were going to go to but everyone just feels that at the end of the day they just want their 30 percent on nft sales but the thing is is that like that's going to destroy a lot of people's businesses or that's how they perceive it and I think they're the ones that are the most angry. Um, my stance on it has always been that like, well, I, it was always obvious in my opinion that this was going to come. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, well, if that's the price you pay, but then you end up having like a million players in your game rather than the, the 800 that Decentraland has or whatever <laughs> crazy low number it was that was discussed in the previous podcast, then, you know, maybe that's the price you need to pay. But as we literally discussed in the first topic, I think it does go to show you, or Tim Sweeney came out and said um, quite a while ago as well, it's just like another case of Apple trying to suffocate a new technology that could be upstart and, you know, lead to innovation in the space. And they're trying to kill it before it even gets started. And I think that would be the current vibe of all the builders in Web3 at the moment. So can you purchase games on the Epic Games Store using cryptocurrency or is it only fiat? At the moment, it's only fiat. Um, I, but well, no, there is only fiat. But they did allow um, Blancos Block Party to be, and and that's also out on Steam, um, and that yeah. has got some blockchain integration. So I think people are taking teasers. I mean, it's interesting because we mentioned Microsoft before in their stance, but I know for a fact that there are titles right now that are going to be built on console using blockchain. The two ones I can think of at the top of my head is a game called Shrapnel, which has been developed by people who used to work for Bungie in 343. That game looks amazing. And there's another game called Off the Grid, developed by Gunzilla in Germany, who are like the ex-Crisis guys. And that's also, they were like, had a massive stall at Eurogamer, for example. And that's also going to be uh, blockchain integrated and, and doing it. So there are AAA games in development. So it seems like they will be allowed on console. Um, well, they're already out. There are already games on mobile that allow blockchain as well. So I think everyone knows which way it's going, and it's just trying to make sure that people protect. You know, they don't like the fact that you don't see any part of the revenue stream coming in if it's all done outside, and that will terrify anyone. I think what's most interesting is going to see like how does um, Google respond to this, and you know that's what Kenrick's saying there. You know, they could come and put a mm -hmm. way more positive stance on it, 
Um, and, you know, then everyone would flock over to that. And that could be quite a game changer if that were to happen. Uh, but yeah, I would say everyone is spooked pretty badly. So I'll, um, I'll introduce the second guideline, which is an added guideline before I share my thoughts on it. <laughs> um, so they added apps may use an app purchase to sell and sell services related to non-fungible tokens, such as minting, listing, and transferring. Apps may allow users to view their own NFTs, provided that NFT ownership does not unlock features or functionality within the app. Apps may allow users to browse NFT collections owned by others, provided that the apps may not include buttons. So then it has a snippet about you cannot outlink someone into another place to go and buy it. What place what? might that be, Maria? Hmm. <laughs> I don't I don't know. The Microsoft store? Who knows? <laughs> um, so my, my thoughts is that my interpretation is that Apple is okay for games to lock features and functionality in the games behind owning NFTs as long as the NFTs are purchased through the in-app purchase. I think what they're blocking is you go to somewhere else to buy the NFT that then locks the feature in, in the game. Now, this does bring some questions because I know that nowadays, for example, with hard currency, the rule is more relaxed where you cannot outlink the player within the game. You can't make references that they can buy it somewhere else. But if you do have a browser web page, for example, players can go there and buy the hard currency linked to their account. And then when you enter the account, it's there um, within, for example, your, your iPhone. So it does feel like they might be taking a harder stance on these items that they listed where they will not allow this behavior. But it doesn't, it doesn't fully kill the ability to use NFTs within games. It sounds like what is the kill factor is having to use it in that purchase, which is very different to how you would expect to dynamic price points and being able to use cryptocurrency and not fiat. What what are your thoughts, Neil? I think you're you're right. And I think that is going to be the next step. So I think for now, they are saying that you're right, that they could have completely out outlawed nfts altogether and had the stance like microsoft on minecraft specifically where they say it's not allowed they are allowing it but they as you say are trying to make it so players will may, the majority of the time spend with you know real transactions so they get their percentage and i think you've called out like the you know the obvious problem that they have here so at the moment on the app store you have just these price tiers so as you say, with the dynamic nature of NFTs, an NFT at one point a board date could be worth a hundred ETH. Another time when it were first minted, you know, maybe it was two or three or something like that. And the variation is insane. So you can't pin it to a specific price tier unless someone buys some sort of intermediary currency to buy it. But then that currency itself, if, if it's a cryptocurrency, is going to have volatility to it too. So I would imagine that Apple will at some point develop their own intermediary system as well so that you can buy something that can you know but basically their own crypto i wouldn't be surprised if they did that or something similar to that as like the final step to then you know really allow people to do it to me it seems like they're just rolling things out in stages before they have their kind of own fully fledged system to oh, just allow them to have their cake going and to eat. be my prediction oh sorry well i've stolen your thunder completely but you, you might have a better way of describing <laughs> no it, no but, we're completely yeah. aligned it does seem like a stepped approach to then again continue the building their walled garden where they do allow this, but you have to to use their own systems and they'll still get their revenue share through. Yeah, it. and well, that I would say though, given Apple, that's actually quite progressive of them compared to sort of previous things that they've done. They have sometimes had like quite hard stances on things. Um, 
And, you know, you could still argue that there is a lot of good to be done. I mean, does that mean they'll have their own, you know, built-in non-custodial wallet on your phone? You know, that could be a game changer as well in terms of, you know, uh, people, you know, really getting access to crypto and making it mainstream. So, you know, there could be pros and cons to this in a wider scale. But for sure, as you said, you know, we, we can all see what's happening just to make sure that they have their cut. Yeah, what well, well, I don't fully understand, and I am not in the space. I work in free-to-play mobile gaming. Mm-hmm. What I don't understand is why the pricing has to be dynamic and why it has to be dynamic pinned to, well, anchored to a cryptocurrency. If you're, if the principle is ownership, and of course this may not be, you know, decentralization, but for the principle of ownership, even if you're buying it with fiat in the in-app purchase, you'll still own the NFT. Do you think we might just see the concept of, you know, the Web3 principles and what it, how, how the, the economy works with it? That's possible, to be honest. I've never really thought about it that way. I suppose on paper, you could do something like that. I think there's a lot of negatives for you as the, the, the developer or seller of those items, especially mm. if you can get them for 30% cheaper outside of the app. But you're right, you could just have it that NFTs cost this much. They could never cost more or less than that. You can do that via smart contracts. That has been something that I've seen discussed quite a number of times between some people. I don't actually know of a project that's doing it at the moment. Um, but perhaps that is a, a particular place where it could go to. And then, as you say, it would just be the case of, you know, if you buy a specific item in insert free to play game here that, you know, mm-hmm. then you own it and you are still welcome to trade it outside of the marketplace and someone else can use it. Perhaps, perhaps that's the way that they might want people to go. Yeah, and... can I offer a couple of quick thoughts? Um, yeah. So, in my opinion, I don't think Apple cares at all about NFTs. All they care about is control, like whatever it is. If it's <laughs> NFTs, some new technology, whatever that pops up, like that's all that this is. This is really about, in my opinion. They just want to make sure that all transactions take place in their ecosystem. Um, you know, then, you know, taking steps to ensure like they care more about control and that these transactions take place in their ecosystem than how like profitable or successful the economy on their platform actually is. And that's so twisted, but it's so true. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe part of this is spurred on from the fact that's an estimate that like over the past year, uh, app store revenue is down like two or three percent. Uh, which is probably the first time ever that's been like that. And it's probably spurred on from the IDFA changes. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot um, with that. But by like ensuring that like all of these transactions like go through them, like that's just their way of making sure that their business has that growth trajectory in it. And they'll do whatever it takes as long as, you know, regulators don't get into way to, to make that happen. So it's not even like, in my mind, in my mind it's not even really about like, debating the rules like it's just sort of the bottom line that like that's just what they want and they're going to get it until governments say they can't um and when i look at this like you really can divide it into two parts one is um or two questions and one is like is apple being anti-competitive in this move and acting in ways that are bad for users and were and will harm businesses and then the second is is just the question of like is it still viable for web3 mobile games to succeed and if so like what are those new best practices going to be that like can work around this to um to make it work the answer to the first question is obviously yes and so i think you guys are right that they are taking a stepping stone approach to like increasingly like encroach 
all of their control on every aspect of like how this works, including maybe in the future, their own wallets, their own, you know, marketplaces, like whatever that means. Um, but my guess would be like, I think the heat, like the regulatory heat, if I had to guess is going to pick up over the next year. And I don't know if it'll start from this. It could start from something else, but then like become more broadly encompassing. I think like over the next two years, like we have to see like regulatory um, changes come in Apple's direction. I could be totally wrong. The timing could be off, but like all of these incremental steps that they're taking are just like, it's just so obviously anti-competitive <laughs> that like, I'm just like, what are regulators doing? They're focusing on like all these yeah. like, wrong <laughs> companies and things. Like, how are you not paying attention to the the main stuff that like actually demands attention? And then, yeah, the second point, like I, I'm just curious, maybe before we move on, um, like, Anil, do you think like the way that companies are going to go about um, like working with users and Web3 in general, do you think it's going to like Apple's moves are going to force conformity and it's going to look increasingly like what we've seen with Web2? Or do you think like the new best practices, like there are still going to be people finding ways to still like send people to like buy NFTs on websites, even if they can't put a link and that the ecosystems surround these games more outside of the app. I'm curious that's what you a, think. Yeah, that's a great topic. I think that's like a really divisive one because I think there are different companies trying different ways. I think you have your kind of like people who are true to Web3, want everything to be decentralized, will go and fight on a, on a hill to die for if they need be to make sure that they have it their way so that there isn't like a, a bully in the room that's, you know, taking pocket money of everyone's, you know, uh, crypto gains all the time. And I think some people definitely try that. And by getting the right audiences and trying to educate people, they might be able to do that. I'm, I'm more on the other side. I think more realistically, you know, crypto, although it's shown like massive potential in the last year and a bit, you know, that we don't yet have like a top crypto game that has got sustained revenues over a period of time. Axie, you know, blew up really quickly, but then faded away. So what is necessary for a game to sustain the course? And to do that, you just need a, a massive user base and as many people into it as possible. So I think some people that are approaching at that angle will probably just say, well, this is the price that you pay. You would pay that price if you're making like a regular free to play game anyway. Is it really that different? We can do this. There might still be some, you know, potential upside. You will still be able to kind of point people out there. Um, and so I don't think people will necessarily be happy about it. Like I'll admit that I'm not happy about it, but you know, I think it's coming to that point of, you know, if you could choose to have a million people in your app or a thousand people in your app, unless those thousand people are extremely wealthy people, um, you know, how's it going to do it? So I think it, it you'll see, I think you'll see two different things. I think the interesting question will be which one of those two will win because, um, although it's unlikely, what I will say, what actually proved is that I don't know if you ever played it yourself during the boom period, but to, to play it was like really difficult, right? Because you've got to set up your MetaMask wallet, you've got to go on the site, you've got to buy the axes, you've got to make an account, come into the game, which you can't download off the app store, you got to try it. And yet it still flew, right? There was still over half a quarter of a million people playing and the value of the token exploded. And I guess it goes to show that if people hear that there's a way of making money by playing a video game, they will go through these quite cumbersome and difficult steps to do it. So it is still possible, I think, that if you get the... I personally think that will still happen to a couple of games. I don't know what the games they will be, but I'm sure some of them will just get this kind of Ponzi effect and will go crazy. And you'll see it a few more times. I expect the same thing will happen to those titles too, that they'll moonshot and then collapse. But if there's always a couple that do that, that may still be enough of a reason for people to fight 
quote unquote, the good fight on that side of things to see how it goes. So a bit of a rambling answer there, but I think you see, <laughs> yeah, these two worlds uh, collide, you know. But before we move on to the Netflix uh, cloud gaming, so in terms of the regulatory environment, I don't know if you're aware, the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK said that Meta has to sell Giphy. So I think we are starting to see more attention being paid to... It's so stupid, though. <laughs> finish, finish it. It's, like, it's, uh, more the, uh, it, it's more the principle <laughs> rather than the content is trying, trying to get like, to. How can you, like in your right mind, not pay any attention to the App Store, but you're going to make meta self freaking <laughs> giffy like what are you doing like do your job my goodness anyway should, yeah, I, should I move slow, on right? to the next topic because this giffy, is giffy's less <laughs> less less scary um i do i did want to ask you a, a business strategy question before we move on because you said that the app store their uh, revenue decreased two three percent i think like, is so that correct? yeah i think it's an estimate and but you, something like that and you mentioned that Apple shot themselves in the foot. However, I think YouTube revenue and also Meta has been struggling due to the ATT. Um, well, they never come out to confirm it, but it is presumed that it's due to the ATT changes. So do you think from a business strategy perspective, actually Apple came out winning because it affected their two main competitors? Um. Mm, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't think they really compete with like meta um, and they don't really compete against YouTube specifically. Like Google's search engine is pretty immune from like these IDFA changes. So I don't think they like really like made like a competitive leap forward other than just slowed everyone down. <laughs> um, so I don't know if they, they really won. I think they could have taken like slightly like different pacing approaches instead of just like making everything impossible, like really difficult overnight. Um, I think like it still might be smart from them, like competitively speaking in the sense that like their move, even though it was harsh and it hurt them in the short term, it will enable them to build a larger ad ecosystem where they have more touch points and control around all things Apple. Maybe that extends to an ad network that hits on like third party, like other apps and platforms too. And that could be smart, but yeah, we're just kind of seeing the growing pains right now. Um, and can I just interject there with something as well that I think is quite yeah. important to this topic? So we didn't cover it in the Apple App Store update guidelines, but there is another big one put in there that I think is equally significant. And that other big one is that Apple have put that they demand that anyone who uses uh, boosts for social media, they have to be purchased right. as IAPs. So, for example, if you're on Facebook and you wanted to advertise the Navic metacast fantastic metacast you should listen to it every week and you wanted to boost that right now that revenue goes straight to meta but now under new rules actually apple would take 30 percent of that so it's like another kind of screw you yeah. so I, I i totally agree i mean you as always aaron you're really good at this you mm -hmm. you know you you see through the faff i call it <laughs> um you're like the tech whisperer almost i would say in that yeah they're trying to like for years, they've seen how much revenue has been generated through mobile ad revenues. They've tried it several times to sort of get it working and do their iAds. And I think now they've holistically realized what is necessary to make it work. And, you know, that's why you've got the privacy, why you've got these guidelines. And I'm guessing that lots of core systems are about to come online, I'm guessing, in the next sort of six to 12 months and move people over to it. And they're just trying to force everyone out and again, go for their walled garden approach. I think that's what we'll see. Um, but yeah, it ties into what you were talking about, that not only are they, you know, taking the revenue away from it that way, but they're trying to like restrict it even further and just move mm. it into their own hands. 
Okay, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to have to go into Netflix cloud gaming. We have an ambitious schedule today. <laughs> yeah, no, I can. I think we can keep this this topic pretty pretty brief. Um, so you know, uh, you know, obviously the Netflix and gaming story has been beaten to death at this point. Um, but I think um, you know it's still worth highlighting occasionally when something notable is said, um, such as you know this past week when Mike Verdue, Netflix's VP of Gaming, said Netflix is seriously considering cloud gaming as a value add to the Netflix subscription. Um, I don't think this should be all that surprising because cloud gaming is the best match for what cleanly ties into the Netflix model, similar to video, um, enabling subscribers to play on any device, play anytime, anywhere, and have all that content be part of a, of a core subscription is how Netflix operates. And cloud-based delivery is the way to enable that. And they're really good at, at you know, building best practices on how to manage um, cloud-based delivery. So um, in my opinion, it's really only a matter of when and how they try to you know, test something with cloud gaming. Um, mobile gaming was an easy place to start because 99% of everyone has a smartphone and they obviously started with even just simple smartphone types of games. Um, but that does ignore how a lot of people like to game, like on larger screens. Um, so because Netflix is you know, just good at cloud delivery kind of stuff, and this kind of neatly ties into how they already operate, I actually would give them the benefit of the doubt that at some point they will make interesting moves here, and there's no shortage of IP that they could start to build around. So the question really is just like, how would people play? How do they reduce the friction of the experience? Like, would you need controllers? If so, how would that work? You know, um, stuff like that. But um, I'm not overly concerned about that. They also, um, he, Verdue called out that Stadia struggled because of its business model, which is true. But, you know, as we previously discussed, that's also an oversimplification of, you know, Stadia's issues. But um, I guess my, my question to, to you all to, and we can keep this brief, but like, do you think he's underplaying the tech risk here, the friction that is here to make this like actually doable for, uh, for users and like, what do you think the best path is for them to like iterate and test something here? And now, now you go, Maria. You go, well, Maria. <laughs> I I think having two big players because Xbox Xbox Game Pass is also exploring the cloud solution. I think we're just going to see the technology go in leaps and bounds. There's already a partnership going on with with Sam. Is it Samsung? I believe it is. I'm. Um, if there's anyone that can solve this, it is Microsoft and Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, obviously there are limitations to the cloud-based model. Like you're not going to see like, you know, people competing Call of Duty at a high level yeah. through you know, like through Netflix's cloud delivery systems. But there obviously people play games in lots of different ways. So there still could be something interesting here. Just really curious to see what that UX um, ends up looking like the the last thought I just kind of wanted to throw out there, and this is just like a crazy thought. It's not even a prediction, but it just it got caught in my mind, and I thought it was interesting. Um, is that maybe one day Microsoft should acquire Netflix? Um, obviously, they have their hands full right now um, with Activision Blizzard and regulators around that. Um, but and it has nothing to do with enterprise software. But the opportunity to put the leading video subscription and gaming subscription under one roof and bundle and integrate them somewhat effectively mm -hmm. and share IP 
across um, all of the development and production teams. Um, that evil, would be Aaron. that would be awesome. <laughs> um, and I don't see the antitrust case here because, like, what does this have to do with like anything really? Um, like, they're they don't operate in video, like. You know, there isn't like a strong case to make there, even though I'm sure some regulator would make something up. But um, anyways, I just thought that was interesting. It would be a huge acquisition, but it would like build like perhaps the most interesting entertainment subscription business in the world. And it's just on the path and like we're, already, we're on the path already to see gaming and traditional um, entertainment merge increasingly. So anyways, that thought made me excited, but probably won't happen. But I still wanted to share. <laughs> it would make perfect sense by that. I don't think that would ever be allowed. I think other companies would step in as well. The, the amount of power a company would have, as you say, to have those two things under one roof, you, you, you complete monopoly on the entire market, surely at that point. It would, it would be amazing as a consumer, to be fair, right? Like you get all the movies and all that kind of stuff. I think coming back to your, your previous question, like I agree if there's one company that understands cloud-based technology, surely it's Netflix. I will be intrigued to see what they did. I think to be fair, they've shown it both in their sort of TV offerings and even with their games that they're willing to try kind of like smaller stuff first just to see how it goes and then build upon it. And I think that's actually really cool from Netflix. That's like kind of unlike some of the other companies that so they don't mind putting out almost a subpar product to begin with just to sort of get that initial data read and work out if it's worth reinvesting into. So I think they would probably try the same. And I think, you know, will they learn the lessons from the past? As you say, instead of going for, you know, high, you know, fidelity action games, if you just went for like turn-based games or very narrative driven games of which they've got great IP, Stranger Things, you know, Squid Game, et cetera, et cetera, where you could do like more choices rather than reactions, there'd be a lot to build up. So I'll be interested to see what they come up with too. And um, actually, I think Squid Game could be one that you see something for this like mm, because you know, they've yeah. already said something where, you know, they're going to have like real life games and stuff like that. And now they've got a gaming service and they could tie it in together and there is only one winner and you get a prize. I mean, I oh, can see well, that making it being very lucrative. Put it actually, way. we'll we'll tap into that a bit with the Silent Hill. I'm I'm just fascinated, Aaron, with that prediction of Netflix. It just clicks. It makes a lot of sense. And I don't know if companies would try to prevent it. And, and be against it, especially if we see Netflix dwindling their subscription numbers and we start seeing lead, other leading competitors in the space in terms of entertainment subscriptions. Netflix currently is trying to do a store within a store on the mobile platform. So you still download the game. So, you know, if Microsoft does do their store. Yeah. Wow. They're, they're I'm kind of blown away that. at the moment. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Their market cap is 130 billion, though. So, I mean, the size of the wow. acquisition would be monster. And normally at that level, it's hard to get them through, right? That, so, you're almost talking about twice what they've paid for Activision Blizzard. And that, that's still almost a year from being announced to it going through. That's why I think you would just get caught in red tape. But let's see. Yeah, it would be, it would be studied by regulators for sure. But for context, I, I, I don't have it right in front of me. But yeah, Microsoft's market cap is probably like 15 times larger than Netflix's. So it still would be a pretty small percentage of Microsoft's business, which is like crazy to think about. But anyways, uh, Maria, should we dive into... Yeah, Silent Hill. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so 
yeah, let's talk about Konami and Silent Hill. And um, yeah, before jumping in, I just want to say that um, Max from the Novic Digest team, he wrote a really good piece on all of this too from his perspective, um, especially comparing everything going on here to how Capcom managed Resident Evil. It hasn't been published yet as the time we're recording, but it'll be out once the episode goes live. So make sure to, to check that out. He did a good job on that. But uh, sorry, let me sorry, start. Aaron. Sorry, it's not going to be on the Navic Pro subscription. Uh, Novik Novik. Digest. Oh, Digest, okay. Yep, yep. Um, so yeah, everybody can go and check it out uh, if you're if you're signed up for the newsletter. Um, but yeah, let me start, I guess, by, by covering just the general news of what happened. So in short, after many years of stagnation, Konami announced several Silent Hill announcements all at one time in a, in a big presentation. Um, the first was Silent Hill F, and this is a new mainline um, game in the series. Uh, the next one was Silent Hill 2 Remake, which is being developed by Bloober Team. I think it's going to be a PS5 exclusive. And my guess is it'll probably be the first game out of this list to, to get published. Um, there was another one, Silent Hill Townfall. Um, which is being developed by like a double A studio. We don't know much about this project, but it's it's something new in the Silent Hill universe. Um, there's a Silent Hill Ascension, which is a massively interactive live event, a mile, um, which is a collaboration between Genvid Entertainment, JJ um, Abrams, Bad Robots, and a couple other um, places. And it's interesting. Maybe we can talk a bit more about about that. But basically, like that long event will be canon multi-platform and it's the first um mile that really truly leverages a gaming ip for gamers um so lots of interesting innovation going on there and then i think the last project to be announced was return to silent hill which is uh a movie um continuing the trend of you know everything going with ip ecosystems and i might have missed something there but there was a lot you know bottom line is that a lot was announced at once. And just for context, the last Silent Hill game, um, Silent Hill Downpour, and that excludes all the weird like mobile and like slot machine spinoffs that apparently exist. Uh, but that Silent Hill Downpour game uh, was released in 2012 in the PS3, Xbox 360 era. And obviously, PT, which was getting um, developed by Kojima Productions, got canceled in 2014. So this is really like a like after a decade of nothing is like a renewed like big bet on the Silent Hill um, franchise. And I have thoughts, but um, I, I would guess I would like to open up to the group so I don't drone on forever. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why Konami is reviving the Silent Hill franchise now and why attack it in such a big way. Well, I think they've seen the success of, of that genre in general right it's not just resident evil though that's a hundred percent where they've done it because they're based in the same city as capcom and resident evil is doing gangbusters but i think it's also things like the last of us how you get the last of us netflix show as well zombies are always popular how many walking dead spin-offs are there now way too many to count way too many than there should be but that's been going on for over 10 years and has been very successful it's like one of those funny things that for whatever reason people just can't get enough of zombies i guess from the halloween lover here that that makes a lot of sense that you would bring up this kind of topic so well um, zombies are overrated but anyways <laughs> continue <laughs> 
<laughs> so it, I, I guess it's just a really proven trope, though. That's the thing, right? And okay, yeah. to be fair, Silent Hill isn't so much about zombies. In fact, sometimes I, I used to remember people used to say, oh, what's the best Resident Evil game? And the answer is Silent Hill 2 was the joke that people used to make. Because that one in particular is like really, really well done and like really atmospheric and kind of psychological horror-esque. But you know, very popular. It makes sense for them to do it. I mean, Konami kind of shifted their strategy quite radically, didn't they, in recent years? They really moved away from general game development. It's the reason why Kojima left. They don't really use their licenses in the best way. And I'm sure that some money man in the companies realized, hang on, what are we doing here? We're sitting on this pot of gold IP and we're doing absolutely nothing with it. We need to go and do it. You're right to say it's interesting that they've decided to go for it in such a big way. It feels like it's like a massive revival. But perhaps again, if they've looked at how that that seems to be the way that people are doing it these days, that when you bring back an IP, you don't just bring it back with a kind of like, you know, small test product. You go over, go all in or you go, you know, go, mm. go hard or go home. And they've obviously decided to go hard. So be interesting to see it. Although I wonder who'll kind of do it. I do feel like the Silent Hills, unlike the Resident Evils, really sort of fell away. I don't think they really did a good job of reinventing themselves. I think people forget that Resident Evil sort of reinvented itself twice. You know, it went from like a sort of third person tank controller into amazing third person over the shoulder game and then it did it again into first person view and it's always had that popularity and you know really top tier developers i mean uh it's something that we didn't cover here but i think maybe for a future topic capcom's sort of like a resurgence in, into being such a massive player has been huge for them so maybe again they've seen that and they realize that there's something to capitalize on that and they need to get on top of that and i don't play horror games this is why i don't like halloween i get scared very easily um, my understanding is that the horror genre for gamers is underserved at the moment. There aren't that many appealing, very terrifying horror games out there. So it could also be that market opportunity that makes with everything that you said, that's the additional gain that they would target. That's definitely true. I think as well, just the, the industry in general is growing right still. There's there's new audiences that haven't played this sort of game that are now available as different regions around the world become more game savvy and, and they're not used to this sort of thing. And it's like, if you had a good product once, you can kind of bring it back again and, and why not do it and, and make yeah. a better version. I think, you know, for example, um, come back to Capcom, they're about to release their Resident Evil 4 remake, right? And I don't know if you saw the trailer that dropped last week of it, but wow, it looks so awesome, right? Um, personally, that's one of my favorite, like that'd be my top three games of all time. And it's like, and that's the existing game that already exists. It's like, if you're already taking like an absolutely incredible game and you're making it better, it's very likely to succeed. I would imagine that, you know, Konami could easily do that with, as I said, Silent Hill 2 or something like that, which is like, I think, you know, in the PlayStation 2 generation, it was like ranked in like the top five games or something like that. You just make a better version of that. Nostalgia hits hard. Final Fantasy VII Remake would be another one. You know, it, it's been proven that if you just take something mm -hmm. that already exists, but make it like 10% better, that sheer nostalgia value alone can reignite an IP and make it successful again. And I think that would bear, have a lot of uh, bearing in why they've decided to do this too. What, what right. I'm most excited about is the mile event. The inter the the well, massive, is it massive? It's massively interactive massively. live event. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I got corrected I before, so I know very well now. Okay. I see there's a journey just in terms of culture where all, IPs are no longer entertainment. I see IPs becoming part of people's personalities. You define yourself based on what IPs you associate yourself with. And I think before there was a lot of associations with culture, you know, the emo culture, the rock culture, 
many other cultures. And now IPs are almost the next step in terms of that identification of what team you belong to. And I know at least in London, it's extremely, extremely popular to go to immersive entertainment where you're going to an immersive uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or immersive James Bond. So people have that desire to take the extra step to be part of the actual narrative of their favorite IP, to feel that they are creating the story with their favorite characters and people want to do it together. And so for me, yeah, this is definitely the most exciting. It's almost seeing um, Konami go, okay, how can we take this a step forward, leveraging what is already being explored and having a horror movie or you know a horror experience where you're deciding what characters do I actually think it's perfect because the the small number of times I've watched a horror movie or even <laughs> the the last Alien, I always just scream like, "Why are you doing this? You would never do that. Don't go in that room. You know it's going to have something bad in it." And so being able to make those choices, it just makes a lot of sense in the horror genre. Yeah, it's a great group activity, and I yeah, I'm really curious to see what they do here. And um, yeah, I've been really impressed with Genvid and like they're they're genuinely pioneering a new like form factor of entertainment. Um, and that's really cool. Um, and if anyone listening missed it, I, I did interview their co-founder and CEO, um, Jacob Navok a few weeks ago. So you could probably find that if you want to learn more just about like Miles and how they're thinking about this. But yeah, I think this is really cool from the sense that uh, and this one is the Silent Hill Ascension one. But uh, yeah, I think it's cool from the standpoint that they uh, it makes Silent Hill multiplayer for the first time. Um, it's cool because how it plays out, which no one knows from the beginning, is going to be considered canon in this universe. Um, you know, it's going to be streamed to a bunch of different platforms, which is like a step up from some of the the last couple miles that were just like exclusively on Facebook, uh, which is not where like all of the gamers are. Um, and yeah, this is the first mile that like targets a notable gaming IP. And so I'm just really, really interested to see where this goes. I think that, um, you know, they'll have to be smart about how exactly they go about this. It'll be it'll need some parts of it will need to be different from some of the other miles that they've done. Like they I don't know if this will be the best fit to like throw in like a match three mini game, you know, um, <laughs> you know, versus some some other options that they could do. Um, and I think it's important that they execute pretty well and get this right, because this really is the first impression to gamers on what this type of experience can be. And if they do a good job, I could see lots of other IPs wanting to then work with them to to kind of spin up similar things because it's a great um, community like engagement mechanism to keep people like really interested in what you're doing so so yeah I'm really I'm really excited to see where this goes um, but yeah I mean even bigger picture though just to, to just sort of like backstep a little bit it's you know I think they're making all of these moves partially i mean anil you said konami has somewhat mismanaged some like ips and approach but at the same time if you look at their financials every year is just up 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 so they're doing something right and they're they're really profitable um while they're while they're doing it and it's you know they're one of those like uh like many japanese gaming companies where their business also has like an arcades business and a slot machine business they also own a random fitness company, which I learned. And their their big thing is that's um, really successful. That fitness company, it's like one I, of the I most profitable so. sectors. Yeah, 
Yeah, and uh, their 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 big thing is they're spinning up Pilates studios, um, and it's Pilates mirror as they call it. And so they um, have basically they put mirrors on the ceiling, and that's their differentiator for Pilates. Has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but fun <laughs> fact about Konami. Um, but anyways, I mean the the gaming part of the business is still like the biggest, most profitable driver, obviously. But you know, at like higher levels of scale, you just need bigger catalysts to unlock that future that future growth and so i think it's like important that they had to come up with something and silent hill is like an obvious contender from their their library of what to um what to work with to create you know a a further catalyst for growth and then i do think that they have a lot of fomo um you know from what max wrote in novic digest he was basically making the point that like resident evil as a franchise has like outsold silent hill by like more than 10x, uh, like more than 10 to 1. Um, and Silent Hill also has done a pretty good job with the remakes, like as we were talking about, in like a highly effective way, um, and their transmedia strategy. And, you know, with movies, and I think they also have a show coming to Netflix, etc. So like, to compete, you kind of have to go big. Um, mm-hmm. And like, think about it from from a multi-pronged system, you know it can work because you have seen it work down the street. Um, and so, you know, maybe they're a little jealous about that. Um, you know, I don't think they'll they'll topple Resident Evil, but, you know, if the games are good and they hit on what makes modern horror games excel, um, then yeah, I think it could be interesting. And Konami, like, too, like, pairing that with, like, they are trying to be very future-focused. It's sort of, like, repulsive in a sense if you read through their their stuff because it's like it's like all the buzzwords thrown in about (laughs) like they're about like how you know nft this metaverse that 5g even 6g they're now calling out and i'm like what the heck um and so like i don't know if this is just to investors and they're just like throwing out as much as they can but like they are trying to lean into like the future and where things are going, such as with these miles, they're spinning up a, like a NFT platform too, that I don't think touches into any of what mm-hmm. we're talking about yet, but maybe one day in the future. will. so, so yeah, they're trying some interesting stuff, but yeah, I'm excited to see how silent Hill in particular, um, uh, shakes out, but, um, yeah, anyone else have any further points on this topic or should we move on? Yeah, we we can have lots lots of interesting insights there, and I don't know if we're going to see like a zombie project makeover where it's match three and you're trying to make over your most horrifying zombie. If no one's developing that, it might be a market there. Uh, <laughs> Good advice. <welcome>. Yep. <laughs> so I was going to do a lightning deconstruction of Marvel Snap, but looking at our recording time, I think I'll just leave instead of lightning. It'll just be a high humidity count. Um, I'm going to just really summarize this. Oh, no, I enjoyed my, no one enjoyed my joke. That's okay. I enjoyed it. Okay, so Marvel Snap was developed by Second Dinner Studios, uh, whose founders are ex-Hearthstone, including the game's former game director, and it was published by Newverse, that is owned by ByteDance. Um, the official announcement of the first gameplay, it was uh, shared earlier this year. And around January 2019, Second Dinner announced a $30 million investment from NetEase, who is Blizzard's partner in China. Um, they also announced at the time a deal with, with Marvel. 
And there was a lot of confidence when I was reading all of these announcements uh, that they would produce a fantastic game because there was a game live at the time called Marvel Battle Lines that was showing a lot of promise in terms of a Marvel card battler. Um, it went live in October 2018. Unfortunately, it ended service in January 2020. I couldn't f find too much data on it, so unfortunately, I cannot compare the two. So very quickly, some of the gameplay takeaways in case you haven't played Marvel Snap. Uh, what makes it special is I have simultaneous turns in terms of the card gameplay. And you have very small decks with limited moves um, and you have a mana that increases over time. So all in all, what it does is I creates a short and sweet game loop where there is some strategy involved, but you really only need five minutes to sneak a game in. The gameplay is also uh, variable because you have the card power combos, so the cards that you play, the locations that you play with, they have random powers. And the whole purpose of the game is that you want to conquer two out of three locations based on your accumulated power. And you get power based on the cards um, and how they combo with each other. So there's an element in terms of deck building where you're trying to get different cards in with different mana costs to do these, these combos. You play the cards differently depending on the revealed and the unrevealed location powers because they're revealed over time. So there's a bit of push your luck element there. And there's also the ability to multiply the points that you'll win or lose through the snap mechanic, hence the name Marvel Snap. And you have the option to choose to retreat at any time before the game ends so that you minimize your losses. And that's really interesting because you can play some mind games where you put yeah. a card down that's really powerful and you snap and the other person will get scared and retreat or they will call your bluff and then you actually end up losing pretty bad. The rewards are cosmetic where you get to upgrade your cards. So upgrading our cards doesn't bring a new power. What it changes is that it changes the look of it. And then you have different variations of the cards. And looking at the high level numbers so far, so they're, do they're doing a significant UA drive with and also with a store featuring. Um, you can see the UA scaling in the numbers where, for example, they went from 97K downloads to 425K only after a few days. Um, and they enter the top five download chart on Apple and the top 15 chart of downloads on Google Play. But it does not enter the top revenue charts. And we're going to dive into that a little bit. So if we're comparing to the recent launches of new card game strategies, sorry, card strategy games. Uh, so for example, Yu-Gi-Oh! Master Duel, um, that was about 4.5x Marvel Snap's revenue, although Snap is 3x Yu-Gi-Oh! Master Duel's downloads. And if we compare it with Teamfight Tactics, very similar, where Teamfight ta Tactics revenue is higher than Snap, but Snap had higher downloads. So we're going to have to see if Marvel Snap can sustain the, the downloads once, you know, we'll have to see how the UA performs. Uh, Tim Manville, who sometimes joins the roundtable, his shared insights is that it appears that Marvel Snap is pursuing a high DAU and a low ARP DAO strategy. So it's only been live since October 18, so we'll have to revisit it. Very, very quickly in terms of the challenges, I've been playing the game quite a lot. And I think the summary is that I really enjoy the game. It's fun, but I can't find anything that I want to buy. Because you can't actually buy new cards to get new powers. You get the I was going to say, I'm surprised yeah. you didn't mention that. That's the, the I'm biggest getting, thing I'm about that to game. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you, have to, you get new, new cards with, that have new powers through 
um, progressing your collection and you progress your collection by upgrading your cards which yeah. like i said uh, a minute ago is about all about cosmetics so you're you're investing your resources to change the look of the cards i think they had a, a beta where they had introduced loot boxes and they have they had massive pushback and now it just feels like they went to the other end of the spectrum which is you can't even buy um, powers you have to just progress with the mechanic and playing to, well, one reason they there. did that as well is that they were quite against what's called net decking. So what used to happen in Hearthstone specifically is they drop a new expansion. And then in the first week, because you get millions of games played between all these players and they have stats built into their clients, they work out what the best deck is really, really quickly. Right. It solves the meta game, and then everyone builds these decks. And it's like very boring when you just see the same deck over and over and over again. Yeah. It's almost like the fun of the game is only in that two-week period. So with this system, the thing is that even if there is a deck that you really wanted to build, it's almost impossible to build that deck because you can't buy the cards directly. So I think that that's the sort of thing that they've gone for. It's almost like, oh, I don't even know what Maria's got when we're fighting against one another. I have to work it out as we go and you mm -hmm. do it that way. That has pros and cons to it, as you say. It's a kind of different strategy. And I guess that if their ethos as well is just to make it like a, a much faster but satisfying game, you know, like the faster loop is also a big thing. It's just interesting to see how they've done it. But um, I'm delighted for that team, though, still. It's like a very strong team. don't know if you've ever seen Ben Brode's rap video, but as someone <laughs> yeah. who makes game, like a... <laughs> My team have asked me to do one like that many times. I've been like, I'm not as good as that guy to do a rap <laughs> video. That's absolutely amazing. Um, I think you're right, though, to say, where will it go? They're definitely pursuing that strategy. Can it work? I think it's somewhat worked for Hearthstone. I think it's also really good for a new company to have that kind of like seal of approval or quality stamp on it that, you know, they can be trustworthy. They seem to be going that direction. Um, and I guess yeah. they could always introduce the boxes later or direct card sales if it was something the players wanted. Yeah, I think what ends up happening is that there's low variability in terms of the cards until you get quite far into the game and you start progressing your collection where at the start you get specific cards, but then you get cards from a pool. So it's a bit yeah. more randomized until you get to that point. The game can be a little bit samey. And there, another challenge is that their season pass has a design that is uncommon where they don't have two tracks, the premium track and the free track. They have a single track and it's mixed between free rewards and the premium awards. And the premium awards, again, you, you get four cards that I think are exclusive and they'll have their own powers. And then you're earning the resources to upgrade, their, upgrade them more quickly. And I don't, I don't understand the, the season pass. It, for me, it just signals that maybe there's lack of monetization depth to the point where you don't have enough content to have two tracks of compelling rewards to keep the, the players pursuing. And just quickly to hit on the UI and the UX, it's very confusing. Hmm. And I think that tied to the season pass, the way that you um, get the rewards is that you have to complete the objectives and the objectives are separated into chapters and the chapters unlock over time so that the players can't just complete the season pass very, very quickly. But what happened to me is that I entered midway or near the end of now this season of the battle pass, which means that when I unlock the premium pass, yes, because you don't get the premium pass available from the get-go, you have to first complete a free pass to then get the upsell. But once I completed that, I was presented with, I don't know, 20, 25 objectives. And they're not objectives that you complete organically. So you have to just constantly go back and forward. So the if that's the compelling mechanism, I think that we'll see them trying to perfect that experience of the navigation. And 
yeah, that's that's the lightning humidity count talk. So it seems like you have some hesitations on the the success of this ultimately. I I do, but I uh, like Anil said, it's a very strong team. It's a team that knows in and out car strategy games. And so if there's anyone that can solve these challenges, I'm sure that they're looking at the data, they're looking at the progression of the season pass and the collection mechanic. I think everyone I've, that I've heard is playing this game is that they say, I'm hooked. I love it. It's just so much fun. And so now it's, okay, you got that compelling, that compelling core, core mechanic. And now how do you build out a compelling um, content to enable the purchases? Because I, you, I think from what I understood is that the players who are further into the strategy and looking into the details, they, they understand what they need to buy to, to perfect their progression and get there faster. But if you're more a casual player, the game makes it really difficult to connect the dots of what you need to buy and why. So I think just simplifying that, that positioning with the players so that's just really obvious, I think it'll just unlock even further growth. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on this it. This game is definitely built for Asia as well, I would say, mainly given the fact that NetEase are the ones that fronted most of the bill. And the kind of playbook for Asian games is always to go that strategy. They always go for the high retention numbers, large player base. They'll even focus on that or a year or two before they start adding paid lines. Like if you look at PUBG Mobile, PUBG Mobile, you couldn't spend any money in it pretty much for the first six months to a year. They just got it out, get people playing, get them hooked. Then you add the ways to spend money. And they recognize that that's like the playbook to make like mm. a killer title. And I, that's why I feel is the, the ethos of this game. I looked at the revenue and their highest performing country is the United States, followed by South Korea and Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I guess that's where the Marvel IP is the strongest though. So you know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And they do that extremely well. I must say the cars are just gorgeous. They're really nice to look at. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap up the episode here. Okay, I see. I see nods of agreement. <laughs> um, yeah, if you have anything to add to the discussion, you can find us on the Navic Discord. Uh, it's coming to the end of the year, and we're really keen to get some feedback on the roundtables, just to understand like what connects with you, what you enjoy, what do you take away, and things that we could improve. So you have my email in the show notes. I'd really love to hear from you and listen to all of your feedback. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Just really curious to know what what you think about the roundtables. And yeah, thanks for joining, Aaron, Anil. Amazing, as always. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone. 